This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us today. I pray that you would speak to us through it, challenge our hearts and minds, and direct our wills, I pray. Amen. Last week, we <clears throat> heard the children on the recordings uh, speak about things that are unfair. And Father Jonathan reminded us of the powerful, challenging, even uncomfortable grace of God that tramples down our notions of fairness. Well, this week, the issue of fairness is before us again. In this passage of Scripture from Ezekiel, we heard the phrase, it's not fair, not once, not twice, but six times. And the gospel reading seems full of unfairness. It's not fair the way the chief priests and the uh, elders try and trap Jesus. It's not fair the way the two sons respond to their father in the story Jesus told. And to many who heard Jesus, it must have seemed incomprehensibly unfair that tax collectors and prostitutes should be kind of held up and praised while the religious leaders are condemned. Well, this morning I want to focus principally on our Old Testament reading. The chapter begins with a reference to what we're told was a popular proverb of the day. The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And this seems like a classic statement of life being unfair. The parents have done wrong and the children must pay the price. Now, please stay with me, parents. This is not beat up parents Sunday. Um, most of us who are parents uh, carry enough guilt about our parenting without the preacher piling on anymore. But at one level, as a general expression of the way things are, this proverb about sour grapes and teeth set on edge makes intuitive sense. We all know that the actions of one generation do indeed affect the next. We often reap what others have sown, and our children will reap what we sow. We should, however, also note that Ezekiel specifically tells us that this proverb is concerning the land of Israel. That was the context. So it wasn't primarily about individuals, although, of course, it can apply to individuals also. But there's another way of understanding this proverb. The people of Israel, then in exile, had a right understanding that God was ultimately in charge. And their application of that, however, wrongly led them to conclude that if life was unfair, then whose fault is it? Well, God's. The present generation of exiles believed they were being made to suffer for the sins of their parents and grandparents. And so we find them blaming God. Verse 4, you say, the way of the Lord is unfair. There are at least two distinct ways of us understanding this proverb. The first is merely fatalistic. One generation sins, the next generation suffers the consequences. And that's just how life is. 
The second interpretation of this proverb is to, or rather interpreting life, is to look always for someone to blame. It's the past generation that has sinned, but it's the present generation that, who's being punished for their sin, and that's not fair. Both of these interpretations, mere fatalism and blaming someone, both of these are challenged in this passage. Now, of course, given all that these exiles had been through with the fall of Jerusalem and the people carted off into captivity, we can understand how they might succumb to a rather fatalistic look on life. And yet, they had a choice about how they would respond to being in exile. The response should, they should have made in those very difficult circumstances would have been to acknowledge their own failings and take responsibility for what they had done wrong and then turn afresh to God and choose life. I think one of the lies that people so often believe is that they have no choices and that they are only victims of what life has dealt them because of genetics or upbringing or circumstances or even because of societal systems that may have played out against them. Now, while it is true that for some people the circumstances of life do massively, significantly limit personal choices, and I'm not saying that those things don't matter, they, they absolutely do. And it's also true that we all make choices every single day. We choose whether we will laugh or love, cut off or complain. We choose whether we will encourage and help or tear down and hinder. We choose whether we will extend grace to others or harbor a grudge. We choose whether we will embrace God or hide from him. The fatalistic approach to life is not one that we should be embracing as Christians. Rather, we're to take responsibility for our own actions and our choices, past, present, and future. Ezekiel challenges this proverb head on. God says, enough of this proverb. I don't want to hear it anymore. Verse 3, as I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Cut it out, says God. And here's why, the next verse. Know that all lives are mine. The life of the parent as well as the life of the child is mine. God is indeed sovereign. And life is not some fatalistic drudgery of simple cause and effect. But this does mean that the second way of interpreting this pro proverb, um, you know, does it mean that that's correct after all? If it's not about fatalism, then I suppose it is God's fault. That's why everything's unfair. That's certainly what people were saying. Uh, no. God's having none of it. Verse 25. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way unfair? Is it not your ways that are unfair? 
That's what God says. But how we love to shift the blame. When life is unfair, we want to see who we can blame. And of course, we live in a blame-filled and litigious society. We do. Taking responsibility for our actions, our shortcomings, our sin, and, res and, and the responses to the circumstances that we find ourselves in does not come naturally to us. The challenge with this second interpretation of the sour grapes proverb that we are suffering because of other, others' sins is trickier. And it's not without merit. Because we do suffer because of what others have done. We really do. Sin and guilt does get visited upon the children from one generation to another. We see this throughout the Bible. In Adam, one man sins, and we all suffer the consequences. In Lamentations, we read, our fathers sinned, and we bear their punishment. And I'm sure we've all seen this. We've seen the consequences of sin that is passed from one generation to the next. We see the suffering in adults that they may now bear because of how their parents treated them. And we may experience betrayal or neglect or even abuse. And we're saturated by sin and the effects of sin. So what are we to do? What is the remedy in the face of all of this sin? How then can we live when we are saddled to some degree with the effects of others' sin? What are we to do when we encounter sin in our own lives, in our congregation, in our workplaces, in our homes? What are we to do about the sin that enslaves and embitters and pulls us down into a swirling vortex sometimes of pain and distress and despair and destruction? Ezekiel tells us. He tells us what we're to do. Did you see it? Did you hear it? It's that one word I spoke to the kids about. Verse 30. Repent. Repent and turn from your transgressions. Repent from the sin of blaming everyone else. Repent from the sin of judging others. Repent from the sins of gossip and pride and selfishness and flaming out on social media. And that doesn't just mean being sorry. It means to, I can't turn around or you'll lose me, turn around and walk in a different direction. Now I've no idea where I am. That'll teach me to do that. <laughs> We're not to accept the nihilistic despair that says, life's a mess, life's unfair, and there's nothing I can do about it. And we're to stop the blame game that says, life's a mess, life's unfair, and it's all someone else's fault. And the exiles were guilty of doing one or other or both of these things. But in doing so, they failed to realize who God was and who they were before him. So no more blaming your past or the economy or the church or your teacher or your boss. Repent and turn from your sin, your wrongdoing.
As long as I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used in all of Israel. Stop hiding behind the sins of others. Stop making excuses. And stop blaming God. And this call to repent, to turn around, is also a challenge to us corporately. And so I wonder, how have we as a church been complicit in the historic sins of slavery or the present sins of racism? Where have we failed to love our neighbor as ourselves? How have we judged others? When have we spoken when we should have remained silent? And when have we remained silent when we should have spoken? The truth is, not one of us this morning comes with clean hands or a pure heart. Not one of us is without sin or fault. We are all sinners in need of repentance. And so we gather here, or by engaging online, not presuming or trusting in our own righteousness. That is a dead end and is thoroughly bankrupt. No, we come trusting only in God's love and God's mercy. And God says through Ezekiel in verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And, and I just jumped off the page. What do you mean get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit? How on earth am I meant to do that? How do we get a new heart and a new spirit? Well, let me say this first. We need to remember that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us any more than he already does. There's nothing we can do to make us worthy as to somehow deserve his grace and his forgiveness. His love is not based on us, but on his very nature. Now, that said, there are 101 ways that we can run and hide and keep God as far away from us as possible. American pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote, God will take nine steps toward us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent, but he cannot do our repenting for us. Now, having said this, there are steps that we can take. Like the second son who initially blew off his father's request for help, he repented. He changed his mind, and he showed up. Sometimes 90% of what we do is just showing up. I think Woody Allen said that once, but it's true. But one of the things we can do is put ourselves in a place where we can hear God speak. We can stop. We can listen. Listen. And we can be still. 
We can, as author Ruth Haley Barton writes, create conditions that set us up for an encounter with God in the places where we need it most. To continually seek God in the crucible of ministry, and I would add, in the crucible of life, no matter how hard it gets. I don't think most of us, and I'm speaking for myself, are particularly good at this. We, we jump to the, the kind of feeling there's nothing we could do in all the fatalism, or we jump to the blame game. But no, let's pause in this crucible of life. And this is what some folks in our congregation were doing yesterday in the open-air soul care gathering. This is what we do when we gather for prayer together on one of the four weekly Zoom prayer calls. This is what we do on Wednesday evenings as we pray the great litany together via Zoom. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes and saying, oh, via Zoom, what a nightmare. Yes, it is. Get over it. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. I'm sorry about that. I can't fix that. But don't check out. And so we put ourselves before God when and where we need to most, right in the middle of it's not fair, in the crucible of our lives, in this time of serious turmoil in our nation, when laws or policies don't always produce justice, when we are tempted to despair, when we wonder if the cycles of hatred and violence and recrimination and blame will ever come to an end. Well, one thing that we can do is what Ezekiel tells us to do, or rather as the voice of the prophet, as God tells us to do, and that's to repent. You know, the great litany is the church's ancient responsive prayer of corporate repentance. That's what we do in the face of the chaos around us. I want to quote to you just one of the petitions from this quite lengthy prayer. Rem this is a prayer. Remember not, Lord Jesus, our offenses, nor the offenses of our forebears. Neither reward us according to our sins. Spare us, good Lord. Spare your people, who you have redeemed with your most precious blood, and by your mercy, preserve us forever. If you've never prayed the great litany, this is your homework assignment for this week. Page 91 of the prayer book. And if you don't have a prayer book, you can get it online. Just look for the 2019 BCP and you'll find it. Page 91. Well, before I close, there's one more thing that I really, really want you to hear and heed this morning, and it's this. It's the cry of our Heavenly Father, the cry of God's heart. He's not angry and chastising. He is longing and inviting you to turn to him. In the last verse of our portion from Ezekiel, we read this. God says, I, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Turn then and live. And this is the theme from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. In the Bible, we find this story graphically played out time and time and time again of rebellion and turning away from God and of the sins of the parents being visited upon the children. 
and time and time and time again, God reaching out. Like a father looking, longing, with open arms, waiting for his lost son. Like a a lover longing for his unfaithful spouse to return. Again and again, God searches and woos and longs for you to come home. Sisters and brothers, we live in an unfair world. But in the midst of it, let us live out the salvation that God graciously and freely offers to us. Let us live out the trust that God places in us. Don't be like that first son in the parable, casual and cavalier. Oh, sure, I'll be there. I'll follow you, Lord. I'll be a Christian. But when it came down to it, he was nowhere to be found. Don't be a fatalist. Don't be complaining and blaming and pointing the finger at somebody else. Life's not fair. Life is hard. But don't blame God. Don't be blinded by the lies of our culture. Don't be deafened by the voices that demand and accuse and blame. Instead, turn to Jesus. Let go of that baggage of blame that weighs you down. Turn and take a first step toward him. Walk towards him. Better, run towards him. Thank God that he is not fair with us. Thank God that he does not treat us as we deserve. Thank God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Turn then and live. Amen.